Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshallden, and today we're going to talk to Nadia Jones-Gilani on the history of the immigration of Iraqi women and their families to Canada. Dr. Nadia Jones-Gilani is an assistant professor in the Department of Gender Studies and is associated with the Center for Religious Studies and the Department of History at Central European University, now based in Vienna, Austria. Her research centers on the historical context of post-colonialism and feminism, including Islamic feminism. Her new book, Transnational Identity and Memory Making in the Lives of Iraqi Women in Diaspora, is published by the University of Toronto Press in 2020. This book focuses on the individual life histories of Iraqi women refugees who have ended up in Canada and the United States. Nadia, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Greg. I'm very pleased to be here. So, first off, Tell us about some of your own family history and some of the deeper motivations that led you to research and write this book. Well, thank you for the question. Um, family, as, as I'm sure you can tell, family is really central uh, to the book. And I would say that it's central um, in, in two important ways. The first of which is I have used my own family and my family history and the story of our family as a kind of blueprint um, for mapping the Iraqi diaspora more broadly. And the second is understanding family as being of central importance to research design and, and methodology. So one of the first um, things that I would like to say is that the centering of family history in the book um, didn't come without much pause. It, it was very difficult to actually put my family's history on the pages. But I did this for a few reasons, one of which was that I had been thinking about diaspora as something that is not just the forced dispersal of people from one place to another, but as something that happens over s often several generations. Um, and this was the case with Iraqis that were coming to Canada um, and the US. So I started to think about mapping um, the diaspora according to my family history and thinking about the longer connections of diaspora as being uh, shaped by factors, whether in the homeland or more globally, uh, that often occur before the actual forced dispersal of refugees. So I used my own family because over two generations, they become part of um, the diaspora from different parts of the globe. Um, so we're also very spread out. Um, so using family as a blueprint in this sense helped me to understand on a micro level what was happening on a macro level um, within these migrations. Of course, putting yourself uh, into a book, putting your own family um, and a kind of traumatic story of dispersal uh, was difficult. But at the end of the day, I relied heavily on my family when I began uh, the research. They were, they were very important in terms of 
helping me to understand the, 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 the migrations of Iraqis, but also helping to connect me uh, to the women that I went on to, to record. So if you'll permit me, I'm just going to give a few minutes uh, background to our family, because I think in some ways it seems as if it, it is a, a very unique um, story, but in actual fact, I found many different versions of my own family within the diaspora. So my um, father is from Baghdad and my mother is from Wales and they couldn't really be from more different backgrounds. So my, my father is a Sunni Muslim from um, an old uh, family in Baghdad and my mother is from this coal mining town in Wales. Um, and they meet in, in Cardiff University uh, because at the time the Saddam government is funding Iraqis to, to go out and uh, become professionals because they will go on to establish what becomes um, the, the modern nation state. And so my father married my mother, took her back to Iraq, um, and then we lived in between the UK um, and Iraq for, for many years until the war with Iran started. Um, and from then on, we were fractured, very much fractured as a family. So we all came back together in Canada, um, which, which was remarkable in and of itself. Um, but it was also really useful to be able to use this story of how people came to be together and then fractured and then came back together again as being a detail that was indicative of the, the Iraqi dispersal and especially the most recent um, the most recent dispersal of refugees following the US invasion in, in 2003. Uh your own family was resettled in Ontario under the auspices of the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. In that sense, you share something in common with uh, many of the other refugees. But I wanted to ask you that uh, about the book's genesis and the fact that you describe in your preface that it's associated with the tumult surrounding the university where you currently work and its struggle with an increasingly authoritarian government in Hungary. Uh, hence, the university's move to Vienna and your own move to Vienna. Can you describe this linkage? So I, I would like to answer this question in full, because I think that there, is, there isn't that much understanding as to what is going on in certain parts of Central and Eastern Europe currently, and specifically in countries like Hungary. So when I arrived in 2016, the government takeover and the move towards authoritarianism was well underway. By 2017, the government had started a, a campaign to evict our university from the country. Now, we were one of many casualties, I would say, in terms of democratic um, institutions in the country many of which are now under the control of the government, of the government or Fidesz, the government party. But what was really remarkable to me, Greg, was the parallels between what was going on in Hungary at the time, and especially when they, when they amassed a, a two-thirds majority vote in parliament and have gone on to revise the constitution several times since then, 
It bears a striking resemblance to the Ba'ath efforts at consolidating power. So for me, living through the this this shift right in Hungary, and especially coming under specific attack because we were part of these liberal, democratic, civil society institutions, and also as a means of, of trying to cleanse Hungary of any non-Christians um, and those that were viewed to be kind of outside of, of the nation. But th there, there are these remarkable parallels between the Fide's effort to consolidate power and the Ba'ath. And so that was a particular um, experience of living through the living through that rise of authoritarianism that really had a big impact on the writing of the book in the end. And you chose uh, for your history two North American sites, uh, Toronto and Detroit. I know these are the largest sites of Iraqi migration to North America, but were there other reasons that you chose these two sites? You are right. These, these really are the centers, um, especially for more recent Iraqis, uh, so the refugees that have that have arrived since two thousand and three, but there were there were actually more. Um, there were other reasons or extending reasons. The project that I worked on for the dissertation, which became the book, didn't start out um, as the PhD that I I meant to to take on. So I came to it in a roundabout way, and I wrote a term paper. Um, for Franka Jakoveta's class, and she became my supervisor. And it was it was a, a paper that um, was built around oral histories that I'd conducted with a few family members and their friends who had just arrived in Canada. And I soon began to see that the influx of refugees that were coming into places like Toronto was very much a... Um, very much on par with previous chain migrations of different ethnic or national groups to Canada. So Toronto became a really important site for me because that's where my family were coming into and, and settling. And when I decided that this is the project that I wanted to do for my PhD, I then thought about a comparative context and Detroit uh, came about very organically because what I was trying to do was map the movements of Iraqis and the formation of their communities in Canada and the US. And so there are these long-term um, kind of natural ties between these two sites because these communities are not so much divided by, um, by the, the national border um, in this case. So I would say that they work, they, they very much complement each other. Um, and then I used Amman as a shadow kind of third site of settlement because many of the refugees, especially since 2003, were coming through Amman and then resettling in Toronto and Detroit. Um, the other reason, Greg, is because these sites are the location of older communities of Iraqis as well. And part of the project of the book really is to try to understand how new migrants, specifically refugees that have come because of this forced dispersal, 
how they've been able to integrate and interact with these older communities, and in particular older communities of um, Arab and Muslim Canadians and Americans. So that's really the significance of these two sites. Um, I've never really seen them as being separate. I think they very much work in conjunction with each other. You introduce your book with the words of Egyptian poet Naguib Mahfouz, and I quote, home is not where you were born, it is where all your attempts to escape cease. Now, it's been my experience that refugees have a very different experience in Canada, especially initially than other immigrants. So what are your thoughts on the dilemmas faced by Iraqi women refugees to North America? This really forced me to, to think about um, the different categories also that I'm employing in the book. But let me start by going back to a previous answer. So I've centered the importance of my family trajectory in the book. Part of it relates to um, trying to understand better the significance and importance of categories of migration and how they shape the experiences of immigrants and refugees, as, as you um, so well outline in your question. So within my own family, there are at least two very distinct categories. So I moved from Wales as an, as an immigrant or as an immigrant to Canada um, through the point system with my family. And my family from Iraq, of course, came as refugees who were resettled through the UNHCR. And so part of bringing in um, the complexity of migrations to and from certain sites, I think is very a, an important part of the intervention that I'm trying to bring about in the book. But I really do agree with you that there is no, there's no easy comparison to the kinds of experiences that immigrants uh, to Canada have. Of course, that is uh, contingent upon you know where they come from and also where they decide to settle. But I do agree that the experiences of immigrants and refugees can be dramatically different, and they certainly are in the case of, of Iraqis. What's interesting about the Iraqi communities that have formed over time is that the older communities also came largely as political refugees. So we have migrations of um, Christians uh, earlier on following after about 1968. Um, and then you have migrations of um, a lot of Shia Muslims uh, following or during the period of the war with Iran. And then you have migrations of Kurds that come during and after the attacks by Saddam and the Ba'ath on uh, the Kurdish uh, northern region of Iraq. So it, it's very interesting to think about how the, the kind of migration itself informs the experience right upon settlement. In terms of, um, in terms of the experiences of um, Iraqi women, specifically this category of refugees um, that have come since 2003, I, in many respects, I feel as if uh, we've entered a very new stage of migration um, and of refugeedom, maybe in, in general. But I feel as if um, 
The Iraqis that, that were coming immediately after the invasion of Iraq came at a time when many countries were willing to open their borders and countries were more willing to take in Iraqis of all backgrounds. What has happened since is that the process of um, selecting uh, refugees from the Middle East, that has changed. But the process of private sponsorship has also changed. So I think that Canada at that particular time was a lot more generous than it has been since in terms of its capacity for taking in uh, refugees. So I feel personally as if my family came at a at a good time in in this larger trajectory, um, because I feel as if a lot of the doors have now closed to the kinds of refugees that Canada and the US were taking in um, in that immediate period after the invasion. I was really fascinated by the Basque Party's project for the rewriting of history, as it was called, that was officially implemented in Iraq in 1979. Can you tell us what this policy really was and to what extent did this program of redefining identity and national heritage influence the way in which your own interviewees interpreted their histories? The project for rewriting history is it's it's remarkable in its capacity. So I would say that it encompasses a it is a project of political indoctrination above all. Let me say that first. But it goes so far beyond um what I had previously considered to be political indoctrination. Um so it is a project in which historians, intellectuals, state ministries, uh, they're all participating in a particular kind of rebranding of the modern nation state. The project itself is designed, and Eric Davis has written extensively about this, uh, he's a political scientist uh, working on Iraq. He writes about the manipulation of historical memory as part of this project for rewriting history. And ultimately what it does is it invades all kinds of political, social, and cultural institutions, and it attempts to bring everyone in line with a new version of collective identity. So it really is a rebranding of a distinct form of nationalism that folds a lot of the older lineages, especially of minority religious groups, into a, a distinct meta-narrative of the nation. So many people have gone on to talk about this project in, in various ways, but for me, the importance of the project, um, especially for, for um, the purpose of studying these Iraqi women as they are in diaspora, was understanding the relevance of um, the, the interference into the education system, so understanding how a lot of this reprogramming came about as a result of a complete overhaul of the education system. So the indoctrination was something that happened over several generations. 
And you could see this in all kinds of cultural institutions, again, in state ministries. And going back to my previous answer um, about the parallels between Fides and Labath, what really struck me was when I arrived in Hungary, um, and by 2017, there was a, a big poster campaign that Fides had paid millions and millions of euros for, and they plastered the entire country with these horrible posters, most of which were of the face of George Soros, who is the benefactor of our university. And he was, he was in this kind of caricature of the laughing Jew. And so there were these incredibly offensive posters literally every single way you looked. And in a sense, it was not dissimilar to the kinds of things that the Ba'ath did um, during the 70s and certainly in the 80s, when they were using these huge billboards and they were putting Saddam's face and he was stylized as um, these old Mesopotamian leaders. So it, there's a very, there are very interesting ongoing parallels, of course, but ultimately the project for rewriting history was a consolidation and an effort to construct a distinct, singular Iraqi identity. And of course, in the process of doing this, they forced out or they forced a number of, or they forced all of the minority groups really to bend to the will of the state. And so in my interviews with Iraqi women, they often talked about this manipulation using mnemonic devices like food. So they would tell particular stories through food, the food metaphors. But the, the bending of the will was one very particular um, distinct visual that came out of several of the interviews. And one in particular really um, sticks in my mind because I think it's the best way of understanding how um, prolific this project actually was. One of the women told me that to understand what this project had done, and she was from, she was from um, a minority background, and she said, the bath, Iraq is like a dish that's been poisoned. And she said, all of the Iraqis are being forced to eat from this poisoned dish. The bath is forcing us all to eat these lies. And she said, and then we disperse all over the world and we carry this poison with us. And this was part of her explanation, not just for what had gone on during this campaign of political indoctrination, but also why Iraqis were so divided and fractured in their community building outside of the homeland. And there are a lot, this is just one such example, but there were many different, very distinct ways in which they tried to articulate what that political indoctrination had meant for them and how, in some ways, they were still very much under the influence. Um, that came out most readily when I went to record my interviews. So I was conducting oral histories, but of course I needed to at least be able to recall the conversations, because many of these conversations went on for several hours with multiple people involved. And I started to realize, um, and of course I realized this already, but the reaction to seeing the recorder 
and that the reaction to the process of recording, it invoked such fear, especially in recent refugees, that that also became part of what I tried to delve into in the book. So to what extent was this political indoctrination still a formative part of how women made sense of new identities, new spaces, and new communities in diaspora? Well, I was fascinated also by uh, the history of the identity of these women from 1968 to 2013 in terms of the time that they left Iraq. And on the one hand, sort of the Iraqi and privileged Sunni minority identity versus Kurdish, Chaldean, Assyrian, and Shia identities, and how these changed or did not change in North America. Uh, and in doing this, you separated the history of nation from the history of the state. And you said this helped you in what you call decentering the one nation state focus of most immigrant history. Can you tell us about that? Yes. Um, part of part of the intervention of the book is to inform a transnational study of Iraqi women. And so I was very much shaped by um, people like my supervisor, Franka Yakoveta and Donna Gabacha, who are writing these very rich, multi-directional um, mappings of immigrant communities uh, based in, in Canada. And so I started to think about the consequences of the focus on nation. Because what I, what I found was, and, and this is an, an ongoing belief that I have, uh, and an issue that I have with a lot of new migration studies, is that there is this pervasive, um, there is the pervasive problem of methodological nationalism, I think, more generally, in terms of how the fixity falls on um, nation and national identifications. And then what I could see in understanding more of the history of Iraq and how that modern identification was so new and it was so manipulated that it, it didn't make so much sense for me to deal with nation state as to be able to separate nation from state. So what I try to do in the book is to be more precise in the terminology and so to cover the history of how the state develops, partly through this project of rewriting history, and also then how national significance and how the significance of national groups related to much older histories that were certainly part of the story of the modern nation state, but they were they were also it was also possible to to separate them out from that history as well. And what I wanted to do really was to understand Iraq as a constellation of national identifications, because I think ultimately that might be a better way of explaining each group and their relationship to each other. 
So as you mentioned, I, I go through the histories of each one of these groups um, from 1968 onwards. So uh, what is meant then by your phrase, the Muslim diaspora and the destructive impact of what you call ethnic absolutism and the stereotyping of Muslim women? So I, I decided to um, try to move away from what I'm calling the ethnic absolutism and use Muslim diaspora as a framework. And I'm borrowing here on the work of Haida Mogisi because one of the things that I noticed in the community formation was that um, there, was a, there was a politicization of Muslim identity, especially in second generation Iraqi refugees. And so part of the context of the Muslim diaspora framework is to think about um, how that politicization is very much informed by the kind of reception that Muslim refugees get in the West. And so using that um, framework was part of being able to flesh out how women are policed, both within the context of Canada's policing and also within their own communities. You relied heavily on oral sources in writing this history. So uh, can you describe some of the challenges that you face in conducting this type of research that you described so well in two of your chapters? Yes, well, one of the challenges, and I think the biggest challenge, was the factor of fear. Uh, the fact that women didn't want to be recorded Many people withdrew their interviews after they were conducted and people were very nervous about signing informed consent forms, which was mandatory at the time. Um, and, and so it should be. Uh, so that was a huge challenge all the way through was getting women to speak on the record, so to say. Um, and therein lies another challenge, which was that the women generally would give one formal account when I was recording. And then as soon as I switched the recorder off, they would give an entirely different conflicting um, narrative. And so a lot of the work of, of going through the oral histories and, and deciding what to do with the material was also trying to work my way around these dueling narratives. And so the challenge ultimately in the book was making space for both um, for both narratives and also making sense of of the narratives in conjunction with each other. Well, Nadia, thank you so much for joining us today. My guest today was Nadia Jones. Gilani, and she is the author of Transnational Identity and Memory Making in the Lives of Iraqi Women in Diaspora, published by the University of Toronto Press in 2020. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca, where you can become a subscribing member and help support the preservation and publication of documentary history in Canada. If you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. 
And we want to thank the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, the University of British Columbia Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Greg Marshalden. This interview was recorded on May 7th, 2021. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt. Thank you.